0: Welcome to
1: um, everyone who's gathered for this event um, in celebration of Renee Lenore Hansen's watershed. Um, welcome, especially on this lovely fall Minnesota evening, October 6th. And I mention that uh, we're in Minnesota because place is a very important theme in Renee's book. And so I'd like to start right away actually by um, offering a land acknowledgement and it is the one from Renee's book. The woods and waters that nourished my youth are territories of the Ojibwe, the college where I teach lies on Dakota land. I offer thanks and respect to the original people of these lands. I ask for the blessing of the ancestors on my intentions on my words, and on you as you read. And I'll extend that to suggest that it's on all of us as we listen and learn this evening. I'm Beth Cleary, and I'm the co-founder of the East Side Freedom Library on St. Paul's East Side. uh, ESFL's mission is to inspire solidarity advocate for justice and work toward equity for all. Uh, We've maintained a substantial online presence since April, 2020, and have offered creative and joyful outdoor events both summers. And so please consult our website, um, www.eastsidefreedomlibrary.org if you're interested in finding out more um, of what's upcoming. We do have a couple of outdoor events yet. Um, Before I introduce our featured author and the respondents this evening, I just want to do some housekeeping things. Um, To all of you who have come this evening, for now, I'd like to ask that you stay um, off camera and off microphone so that we can have the widest bandwidth possible. Um, There will be a point after um, the formal program where we'll ask you to come through and greet Renee and the other panelists if you're so moved to do that. Um, Just checking my notes here. Um, Oh, please do use the chat. Um, The chat on Zoom or the comments section on Facebook if you're watching via Facebook Live Um, to offer questions or responses to the book. And certainly in the time after the formal program, I will funnel those questions through so that Renee um, has a chance to interact with you that way. Um, Okay, so now for the main event, we're here to acknowledge the publication and impact of this important book By Minnesota writer, educator, and activist Renee Lenore Hansen. Um, I am going to introduce Renee in a moment, and then I'll introduce to you the three people whom we've um, asked to come together to respond to read her book and respond to it. Um, And I will introduce everyone all at once, and then we'll proceed. So Renee Hansen wrote Watershed in response to 60-some years of being companioned by the waters of Minnesota, 30 years of stories generously shared with her by students and colleagues at Minneapolis College, and five years of lessons that her diabetes diagnosis offered her. She is grateful to be able to share the braid of these story strands with you. And now in the order in which you'll hear from them, I'll um, I'll introduce the respondents, I'll call them that for the moment. And um, the gathering of these people here tonight, um, I think absolutely warrants um, you're getting to know each of these respondents a little bit So without further ado, I'll offer their bios. Sam Grant has spent his adult life organizing at the intersections of culture, environmental justice, racial justice, and economic justice. He has been on the faculty at Metro State University since 1990 and is currently transitioning from his leadership role at MN350 into a leadership role at Rainbow Research. Sam had the pleasure of working at Minneapolis Community College with Renee Hansen many years ago. He did his first graduate work in integrated watershed management and his PhD work on climate justice and Africana critical theory. After you hear from Sam, who will respond after Renee reads from her work and talks to you a little bit about the creation of the book, um, you'll hear from Chelsea Diarmond who is a founder of who is the founder of St. Paul 350 a grassroots energy democracy organization that works for a rapid and just transition to 100% clean renewable energy for everyone. Chelsea was born in Copper Country where she played for endless hours on the shores of Lake Superior. She grew up in a small Wisconsin town on Half Moon Lake where the Wisconsin River powered the local power mill. Now she lives in St. Paul, the capital city of the land of 10,000 lakes on the mighty Mississippi, and with her husband, Tyler, runs a vintage audio repair shop on St. Paul's east side. Mm -hmm. And um, our last respondent, third, will be Sarah Degna-Riveros, who grew up in Texas and attended the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign Universitat de Barcelona and Columbia University in New York, where she earned a doctorate in Spanish literature. She teaches at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, where she is also working on an MFA in poetry and creative nonfiction. An East Sider and single mother of five children, Sarah is a board member of ESFL. She and Renee met this summer in J. Drew Lanham's seminar at the Northwoods Writers' Conference. So without further ado, and um, with many, many thanks to all of you who have come this evening and particularly to Renee and these three great uh, respondents who constitute a great community for this book this evening. I'll turn it over to Renee
2: Hey, hello, everybody. Um, This evening is really very exciting because I get to hear from people and talk to people about the book instead of just me talking about it. So I'm eager to get into the conversation, but I will read a bit to you first. Um, Beth already explained the strands of the book, the one that I didn't put in is the strand of climate anguish. But that's kind of what runs through the whole thing. So we will get to that, I'm sure. Um, those who've read it recently have asked me to read, start with this little part, so I will. This is a story from the beginning. The book starts with the watersheds that that I first was born into. I was born in Bemidji, grew up um, near the boundary waters on Birch Lake, outside of Babbitt and the Coy River. Um, This is after I had my children, on page 34. I took my children back to the lake. We pushed down a path to the place where a spring gushes out under cedars to send its water, winding through mossy, mushroom-studded banks. We went to the V-shaped trough that channels that water over logs, past rocks and eddying pools. My son pulled spruce twigs from a young trees and set them into the flow. As their pitch reacted against the water, they spun like tiny mad boats toward the lake. He laughed and pulled down another pitch boat. And I always have to stop here and say, if you haven't sailed any pitch boats with your kids or with the child in you, do a little bit of it. However, Josiah, I said, ask the tree. See if it wants so many boughs broken. Trees don't talk, said my son. Ask anyway, I told him. He turned to the tree, his lips moved. He looked back at me. It said okay, he assured me and ripped off yet another twig. The next time he paused before reaching up. His lips moved again and then he turned to me in dismay. Mom, he cried out. It said no. We walked to the end of the trough and watched the water spill into the lake. Um, If you read the book, you will come to know that there are times that I forgot to ask the trees or got into my adult mindset and thought that trees don't talk, as my son said at the beginning. I ask you to talk to your own trees and see what you think. Do they talk? Somebody's at my door, but they went away. Okay, all fine. I think I am going to read this other section to you, um, if that's what, yes. I'm just going to do it before we go on. Last night I was wondering what to read, and I was reading some articles in the New York Times about Mexico and about Iraq. And I was thinking of Bangladesh and what I can do about all of our lost, murdered and um, disappeared relatives here in Minnesota, as well as elsewhere. And it's sometimes hard to remember the advice that I've come to and given, I'm going to read that part. Uh, This is a a story, it's mostly one student, but it does have strands. This is not a student who I still knew when I wrote the book. So in that case, I've changed names and I've blended stories to um, make it feel, I think, all right. When winds no longer bring rain in reliable cycles to a land, Humans Take Desperate Action. It's page 51 if you want to look. Muna, a high school-aged Somali-American, sat quietly in her hijab in my writing class. For her introductory essay, she wove together examples of affronts she had suffered. Her youngest brother detained at the airport because immigration officials thought her mother too old to have birthed him, people crossing the street to avoid encountering her, other students ignoring her presence in the lunchroom. Her later essay about a recent trip back to Mogadishu was more cheerful. She invited readers to walk arm in arm with her and her 18-year-old cousin Halava through the streets, to eat dinner with the extended family, and to eavesdrop on the planning She and Halava did in their shared bed at night, dreaming together of the day when, finally, Halava could also come to the United States. But then Muna stopped attending class. After a week, I emailed and called. No response. Three weeks passed. Reluctantly, I submitted a last date of attendance form, initiating the process by which she would be withdrawn from the class. The next week, suddenly, she was back. When I told her that she had missed so much class that she had been dropped from the roster, she looked up with fear in her face. We arranged to meet later in my office. Professor Hansen, could you close the door? She asked when she arrived. I did. I had to go back home for Halava's funeral, she said and then at the airport we were detained by a travel ban we used up a week to get free her voice was almost a whisper she looked at the floor hollow died muna looked up she bought passage on a smuggler's boat it sank for a moment we simply sat I knew she was desperate to leave Somalia, Mona said. I didn't know she would try to escape that way. There was a long pause. I can't sleep thinking of her in the sea. She closed her eyes and seemed to stop breathing. The boat came from where? Tunisia. And the wave from where? The wind, wind meets water. The water does not actually move, I've been told. Only rises and falls, but when it crashes, The boat moves, seems to move, fiercely or quietly, and the people, you have to breathe, Mona, I said, for Halava. My aunt wailed so loudly when she first heard that I hid in my room, I was afraid. When I asked my sister, she wouldn't tell me what had happened. Then they told me, I didn't know what to do. My aunt has given away the, no, my aunt has given up getting the other children here. She has thrown away her green card. You don't know what to do. I don't either. What would Halava want, I asked. Mona twisted the edge of her scarf into a narrow band. Finish school, she said. She wanted to come here for school. If I can get you back into class, will you finish? How, she asked. I didn't know, not for sure, but I made her a list. You do this. First, you rest and let yourself cry if crying comes, but maybe only for an hour at a time. All that time you remember to breathe, okay? For halava. And then at the set times you pray. You do pray, right? After each time of prayer, you write for this class for 15 minutes. Set a timer and stop when it rings. Then you eat or walk or care for your body in whatever way it needs. Then you talk with someone who loves you. Then you start over again. Will you do that? She said she would try. I petitioned for her readmittance. She adopted my plan to cert her, cert, suit her own rhythm and followed it. Stop to grieve, practice regular breathing. Pray, write, care for body, talk to a friend. She finished the class. And now she is gone. I don't know where, but I think she'll finish her degree. When I think of Halava and the others crossing the sea in boats that are ready to sink, I too must remember to breathe. Peace to her, to Halava. Peace to her, to Muna. Peace to Halava's mother. May we who yet live be at peace. May we breathe in care for those who are gone, and also for ourselves. I'm gonna stop there, and um, see what 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 Sam has to say.
3: So should I just dive in, Beth? Or is some prompting you're you're doing here? Let's
1: go right ahead. No, lovely. Thank you.
3: Thank you. So Renee, thank you for your book and thank you for reflecting on your journey Mm
0: -hmm.
3: of 60 plus years in such an authentic, vulnerable, revealing and inviting way. So as I read your book, it made me think about this notion of living an integral life based on truly honoring the deep values that make your life a life worth having. And I just wanna say, I witnessed that in your story. And I witnessed it in knowing you as your colleague at Minneapolis Community College as well. And just for other people to reflect on this, I have a sense that because of your deep attunement, and listening to and honoring nature throughout your life's course, you actually succeeded in embodying the lessons of working with nature and responding from this deeper integrity that too many human beings let go of in order to have a material life. So you chose something deeper than materials, you chose values and you lived your life as a life of values and you've expressed that in so many ways in your story. So I reflect on one piece in your story where you tell the story of somebody coming in with a gun to take the life of one of your students. And you did something that almost no professor would do <laughs> in that situation, unfortunately. And you and your students successfully disrupted the intent of violence in that particular person in your class. And it's just, I wanna breathe for a second on that because I would certainly like to live in a world where we honor this mantra that I learned from a indigenous elder up in Canada. So Chief Phil Lane Jr. um, led a fourth world Congress that I attended and did a workshop at in the mid nineties. And he said, The honor of one is the honor of all and the hurt of one is the hurt of all. And he asked us to imagine living in a world where that was true. Well, you've lived your life as though that's true. And I just want to publicly acknowledge that I see that and I appreciate that and I aspire to that in my own life's life's course. So thank you. Um, I also wanted to remark on the people we have in common. And I just wanna give you a chance to look at the painting above my head, Um, Kirk Washington Jr., the revolutionary poet of North Minneapolis. And not only a revolutionary poet, an evolutionary poet, because he created a space with his wife for people to unfold democratically. And in your approach to pedagogy, to teaching. It's very clear in your story that you have done that. And so while you didn't feel like you got the chance to ever work with Kirk directly, you were working with Kirk by, out, by living by that same value stream of living by that deeper integrity. You were very much working with Kirk in the best possible way of working with him. So I want to like turn the gaze around from you know looking at Renee and giving her feedback and, and make an invitation to us who have the benefit of either having read Renee's book or can now be invited to go get a copy and read it, to think about the world as a watershed of values. If the world is a watershed of values and we honor, and in the same way that Renee asked us to let the tree in closest proximity to us to speak to us what would happen if we let our relationship with water and with all of life that's based on water speak to us and we invited it to help us think about how do we respond to the well-being of the people in my emotional kinosphere in my physical kinosphere in my watershed kinosphere if i truly paid attention to the well being of all of life in the watershed where I live, what would be possible? For me, the question of the 21st century, and to honor Chelsea, who is one of the respondents here, thank you for all of your amazing work at St. Paul 350, Chelsea. You're amazing in the way you hold leadership, and we're really fortunate to have you holding that leadership space there. If we each practiced, living our deepest values and being as democratic and transparent and vulnerable about that as possible around this question of every watershed is rich in its abundance and rich in its relationships, then that would be a manifestation of the world's unfolding towards this deeper intercultural ecological democracy. That's what I hope for. And so, Renee, my question for you is as you reflect on everything you were able to share in this remarkable book, what is it that you wanna say to us about watershed thinking?
2: Sam, that's wonderful to have you talk and thank you for bringing in Kirk. Um, Yeah. I. I bow in respect to that. Um, What do I want in watershed thinking? That it's not about me, it's not about any of us individually. It's about each moment and all of the lives around us, the plant lives, the bird lives, the soil lives. I think we wouldn't have so much trouble with injustice and racism if we realized that it's not just humans that matter. Um, Humans are a little part of it and they're one part of it, but um, we need to let all of those voices speak. And I think I got really lucky Mm -hmm. in that so many voices were willing to speak to me and then let me hear and let me pass on the messages. Um, I think we're conduits. Like we're we're vessels that the water flows through Mm -hmm. and all that we've touched, all that we've heard flows through us too. Part of it is to not mess with it too much ourselves but to let the stories go through. Uh, you mentioned the gun incident in my classroom. I really don't know what would work in in such an incident. You know, you, I think that was an ethics class and, and we were practicing listening. And I, I think you have to listen to not just the voices, but the spirits of what comes to you. Um, We were fortunate, but we also work together. And classrooms that become community in that way where people know each other, then they can work as something together. They're not a a set of um, individuals. Nothing is a set of individuals. We just pretend it is. And putting that pretense over our lives is what, it, it makes big problems but we really are all aflo together. I really did regret not getting to know Kirk more directly. Um, I always thought I had more time mm-hmm. and I didn't. So uh, do it today or, or when the moment opens and maybe I've gotten to know Kirk better this way, but I really wish you were with us.
3: Thank you. And as an ancestor, he is. He's here right now. So he's here.
2: And he's in my consciousness more probably than he would have been.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Mm
1: -hmm. Thank you for this exchange, Sam and Renee. um, And for setting us off in, you know, the great um, vessel that's going to keep us moving through this conversation and these profound themes. Um, so let's shift now to Chelsea and that, uh, Sam, if you have other questions, come back around after or in the chat and I'll remind everyone to use the chat, um, to add to and amplify what's going on here. So Chelsea, thank you.
0: Um, thank you. And and first I, I just want to say thank you to Renee for your lovely book that came. To me, um, at a really timely, at a really good time. Um, and the thing that struck me immediately was just how you locate yourself in the watershed, which of course Sam has already talked about. Um, but there, I think there are a couple of people here um, who are at our launch event when we started St. Paul 350, and that's how we located our our group too, was at this convergence of the three continental watersheds here in Minnesota. And that's one of the unique things that a lot of people who live here don't know that um, all the water in our state flows out of our state, it goes, east to the Atlantic, south to the Gulf, and north, (laughs) I lose track of it. (laughs) Yeah, so, but the reason that was really um, a powerful thing for us collectively, to recognize is because when we're facing the kinds of struggles we're facing right now. obviously with climate change but also pandemic and um uh, police brutality all of the things that are converging on us um it feels like as individuals we're just a drop in such a huge bucket Um, but collectively here in minnesota being at, at this convergence of these watersheds everything we do here flows out and we know that the water carries our work with it. And so that was just, that's one way that we've grounded our group. And another way, um, especially, you know, when we were in lockdown because of COVID and um, curfews because of the racial justice uprising, Um, another way that we grounded ourselves as a group was, Focusing on our breath and um, Our breath is under attack in so many ways, but it's also what connects us all and um, I love how you talk about it in your book and these two things breath and water. So fundamental to our existence and to our connection with each other, but yet they're invisible to us. And so I just I loved how your story made those things visible. And I, I love the story um, with your son that you read, teaching your son to, um, to, to not just take from the earth, to not just take from a tree, but to seek consent. That's another thing that's been a big theme in our cultural existence right now, is, is the theme of consent. And imagine if we applied that to each other with respect and to our world. And we taught our children um, to to respect our, our planet and each other um, and to, I mean, just, it's just basic courtesy, asking permission and saying thank you and um, learning names. And um, so I'm really glad that you wrote that part. um and I think about that even like like um, in our involvement with an organization like MN350, um, one of the things that always sort of bothered me about that name is the 350. People people don't understand what that is, and it has to do with the um, the the like the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere, which you actually do mention in your book, but it was in the 70s when you we're paying started paying attention to it, um, but it's a really sort of egg-headed number. And um, at the time, I think when when Bill McKibben came up with the name 350, the idea was if people just understood the science, then we would take you know we would make changes. And that's what we needed was this information. We needed to hear from scientists. We needed to believe them. And as soon as that happened, we'd change. Well. <laughs> it's not really working that way. Um, and so the part of the name that I do like Sorry, I'm not sure how I got muted. Okay, the part of the name that I do like is the Minnesota, because that locates us clearly here. And the name comes from the Dakota people. And many is water soda is the skies, the clouds. And that's the water and the air that we know that you that you write about so eloquently in your story. And that we know um, we need to be seeing and valuing. And I like how um, Sam said, we need, we need this world to be to have a watershed, a watershed of values. And I feel like that's, that's in our name, that's in our state, in our place. And our location here at this the convergence of these continental watershed sheds, it's really powerful. Um, and even though we're just individuals, um, your, your book is a great example of how our, our lives um, can really be powerful in these moments when it's it's so necessary like the example of your classroom when the the person came in with a gun and um, there's so many other great examples in your book so I, I don't want to keep talking but those are just some things that really connected with me and I thank you so much for writing it
2: thank you for that um a weird thing about writing a book that is not as great as teaching is that there's nobody else there when you're writing it you know and connection we are all in this together so uh that's why there's a lot of white space in the book i often told my students you a book, you've never read a book if you haven't written on it it needs you need to make it yours it should be a conversation between you and whoever wrote the book, and then you and the other people who read the book. That's, that's the point of it. We write only because we can't talk to everybody and because we're going to pass on one day, and some of the things we have to say might retain worth for a while. Um, but we write for that conversation. So I love your hearing from you, Chelsea, on that. And the the thing about the waters and the Minnesota waters, we need to be talking about that. Many people don't know that. And we also need to become, I'm gonna use the term indigenous in a small eye. We need to recognize our indigeneity to the earth. And whichever place of earth we land on right now, we need to come to know and we need to it welcome others to come to know this too um dakota and anishinabe people recognized that this was the place of the waters and they were water keepers for the for the rest of the continent they were a sa- they had a sacred job to keep the waters and and it's not just their job it they the, the elders and the, the youngers, too, who I've spoken with, who are Dakota, Anishinaabeg, and other Indigenous groups point out, they, like, we don't get to throw it off on them. We who are not for generations on this place. If we're here today, we are responsible to this place today. I felt a big responsibility to my um, refugee and immigrant students to welcome them and also to lay the mantle on them. They're here now. I had Somali students tell me, well, this place is fine, it's got plenty of water. Yes, they were without water at home. They came here, it looks like there's plenty of water, but the water has problems here. And we we need that. We need that working together of all the people on this land. Um, and when we go someplace else, even if we go there for a little vacation, I urge us to become native to that place. I don't know if that's the right word. But you know what I mean. Get to know it. Talk to the water. Learn the names. But you don't have to learn the names that everybody else uses, you know. Your tree will tell you its name. And it might not be catalpa. It might be. Rachel, I don't know, Um, because you need to know that one. And I see that you do that, Chelsea. I see that you know. So we exchange in that way. Thank you.
1: Other really um, inspiring exchange. Thank you both so much. Uh, Sarah Degna-Riveros, if you would lead to Renee.
4: Thank you, Renee, for your powerful memoir, and I'm so grateful to all the water protectors who are here tonight together to discuss Renee's work. Um, I I, I really have wanted to be in conversation. I've also been marking your book um, and uh, writing back. Um, I had the privilege of meeting Renee at the Minnesota Northwoods Writers Conference this summer in June in Bemidji via Zoom, where we took a course together in eco-memoir with wildlife biologist Jay Drew Lanham, poet and author of the memoir Home Place. Renee, Renee your beautiful book Watershed conveys a deep love uh, for the Northwoods home place where you grew up with a reflective study of the ecology of t- your childhood through deep listening that honors the stories and experiences of your students and their home places as they together witness the effects of climate change on the global landscape, the community of people and creatures who depend on water and on your own human body through a medical reckoning with being diagnosed with diabetes. Watershed is a brave call to collective resilience of bodies and ecology working together for survival by way of mutual aid. Attuned to our needs of symbiotic caregiving that interweaves wildflower childhood stories of foraging for blueberries, rose hips, strawberries, and making winter green tea with brave all-girl overnight canoe trips with school friends. Witnessing the grief of habitat loss and threats of extinction of moose, otters, beaver, lightning bugs, bullfrogs, ravens, pine martins, egrets, and monarch butterflies. Renee, you trace uh, your lived experience from the land around Lake Bemidji through a migratory outdoor childhood, eventually becoming a professor of global studies, writing, and ecofeminism at Minneapolis College. You can hear my dog, Jade, who wants to be free right now. She will be free in five minutes. Oh, she's free now, all right. This book intertwines a deep love for people and planet with anxieties and evidence of the very real threat of climate collapse. That started with hints in your childhood as the Minnesota winters were warming. And eventually through conversations with international college students exploring the root causes and effects of drought in Somalia and drought in central Mexico. So, So timely for us here as we grapple with this summer's drought here in Minnesota grief about sinkholes in the Russian tundra, and politics around the Nile River in the surrounding countries that your students' families call home. So many stories. Drawing resilience from the vulnerable interdependence of deer, bees, walleye, bears, foxes, loons, mallards, dragonflies, spiders, chipmunks, and otters, You weave in statistics that would be more painfully terrifying were they not couched in the gentle song of praise for wildlife in your storytelling. Today, we have half as many wild animals on the earth as in 1970, and I quote from page 60, 97% of the mass of land animals is made up of humans and our pets and our livestock only 3% of our moving companions are wild," End quote. Intercalated poems that initiate each chapter of your book offer wise, gentle, motherly, manageable to-do lists for how to care for ourselves and live in a right way on a hurting planet. Sometimes it's in poetry that we can hear traumatic things in small, lyrical, approachable pieces. Renee, I wondered if you would be willing to read to us from your poem Come to Know, on page 133. Of course,
2: Sarah, and I love your writing. It was great to write with you this summer. Come to know. Commit to one restraint, perhaps hang your laundry to dry, give up air flight, stop eating cows, walk when you could drive, learn to cook. Listen with a welcoming face so you come to know your neighbors, those who are differently abled and differently clothed and differently aged and differently cultured. After you have made your commitment, record each day how you do. Notice your patterns for keeping or dropping your commitment. After a week, Recycle the paper. Then get to know a tree over time,
4: personally. Thank you, Renee. Get to know a tree over time, personally. Here in your book, Watershed, we witness a life lived in relationship of caring conservation of nature starting in childhood. From your magical early years of freedom in the woods your father's journal of weather patterns and their electric and gas use uh, that he annotated to reading about the environmental and behavioral triggers for insulin dependent diabetes that you've dealt with in the past several years. This is a book of personal accounting and public witness to ways we are interdependent across species, language, creed, and home place. Amidst the distress of environmental crisis and living with illness, you are hopeful. With your students' courage to apply knowledge to environmental justice issues in their home neighborhoods and hope in regenerative agriculture, Renee, you draw extraordinary eco-connectedness between the waterways, rivers, and trees in Minnesota, Somalia, Yemen, Ethiopia, Senegal, the Congo, Mongolia, Vietnam, Bangladesh, and Russia with the river of life inside your own body as your blood sugar levels depend on injected insulin to nourish yourselves. As a mother of teenagers whose father is also type one diabetic, I really devoured the sections of the book that address access issues and medical injustice across the globe that reassure us that we can do something to protect and heal ourselves and one another that access to medical care is justice and our global birthright. I wanted to ask you, Renee, to speak to us more about what action we can do to protect our bodies and the earth. As a mom, I was grateful to read ways that the normalization of breastfeeding our children and preserving the mother-infant togetherness for months after birth is a sacred health protection. I was encouraged by your advice to let kids play in the dirt and be dirty and raise pets and farm animals, Renee, you justify our hippie lifestyle. That even as a single mother, there are small joyful things we can do to live in harmony and healing within the waterways and homelands of our mother earth. So I wondered if you would speak to us about actions that we can take, practical, ideas to protect our bodies and to honor the earth
2: well i love the way you pick those out by um having me read about uh, make you know commit to one thing and i loved seeing your dog and your son it's wonderful to share the screen and the airways with our other our other family beings all of the beings behind. You see, I have my plant, my house is nearly empty, because I'm moving out of it, but the plants are still here. So I'm not alone. Um, We have these with us. Practical things. I wanted to say something else first, which is how wonderful it is for me to hear you say the names of otter and Vietnam and Russia and moose. We we love beings by saying their names it's a it's a speaking of a prayer it's a speaking of love and we can speak the names of love even when they're gone um because they're still in us you know they flow in us if we've you know this from quantum physics i think once we've interacted with something the interaction changes us forever And that connection stays with us. And that is really important. We're all in the cells of one another in the memory. I used to tell my students pre-COVID when we were in a room that, that, by the way, we are breathing the same air. We're exchanging air. It was in that person's blood a little bit ago, and then he breathed it out, and you breathed it in. It's going into your blood. And they would kind of go like, yuck. COVID showed us, yes, it's true. We exchange air. We are basically interconnected with one another. And the water we have, it's the only water there is. It's the only water there has been on this earth. And we need to care for it. Little things. They're little practical things. I urge people to adopt a storm sewer near them near where they live and take care of it, clean it out. Um, Understand that, that the water that falls outside of your front door goes eventually to New Orleans and what you put on your grass or throw onto the sidewalk or, you know, whatever you do that, that goes into the water and that's all the fish have to drink um to care for our own bodies we need clean air and clean water but i don't want us to think of it just as a as a selfish only me thing i i ask people someplace to if if something's out of balance in your body wonder how it's going for the trees and the squirrels and the frogs um consider whether it's okay to have purified water for humans and not for frogs. Um, on my webpage, I have a picture of the Minnow Lake watershed that I, that I grew up drinking from and that I still drink from when I go back to the lake. You know, nature had a really fine way of purifying water and it doesn't take a whole lot of space of putting it through the, the soil. And then giving it clean to the humans, but also to everybody else, the, the birches and the loons, and the wolves, all of us get clean water. I think the more we can strive for that. For all the beings. The better it will be. Um, I uh, hippie lifestyle isn't a bad thing. I think so. in some ways my parents were original hippies, although they were very retrograde in other ways, but they were, um, yeah, they were kind of, um, they didn't fit the sixties very well, I will say. No, um, no wonder bread for us. No, it was grind your own wheat, make your own bread, churn your own butter. And it was lovely in many ways. And I think many of us need to learn those kinds of skills, learn the skills that that you might need. Um, I talk about the system downtime and your kid's dad will have to think about that with his insulin dependence. And all of us with our various, we're all food and water and air dependent and space too um and it isn't a bad thing to think about how we will face the time when one of those things isn't available um what can you do i learned what i can do to preserve my insulin longer and how i can get by for a little while without insulin i love sarah the way you're ready you're able to read so many layers of the book and um it's been a delight to have other diabetics come to me and say now i get to admit this to you and i i want to point out that type 2 people are more um environmentally and genetically predisposed to their diabetes even than many type 1 people are and this uh, one of the well, I'm going on and on here but I have many great privileges that have that let me write this book one of them is being type 1 because almost no one blames me for being diabetic and people blame I'm afraid type 2 people for being diabetic and it is not fair and don't do it, it makes me very crabby and that's part of what why I decided to speak really publicly about diabetes because, um I didn't know that there were many diabetics in my family because everybody thought it was their fault I thought it was their fault too I thought they just ate too much sugar I had all kinds of faulty conceptions about this and um and it is it is not fair to blame people for their diseases It's not useful either but it it doesn't help um I think talking about, talking when it's safe about our physical challenges and the challenges of the earth around us is one good thing we can do with each other. Honesty about this, and especially honesty with um, how bleak it feels sometimes. Uh, You can't say that every place, but in this group, I think we can say that sometimes feels pretty bleak my generation my friends my relatives are facing personal well we're all facing personal mortality but my generation is facing it in a a lot of very immediate ways and um And that wouldn't be so bad if we weren't facing planetary mortality. So all the effort we can put toward moving on life instead of individual life, our individual lives are worthy as long as they're worthy. And we have to each have decision-making power over that, I think. I don't know, Sarah, if I'm answering your question at all. I'm I'm writing
4: as fast as I can, Renee. (laughs) It's all recorded, remember? Yes, I know, but I listen with my my hands. You do. I loved, um, there's an assignment in here on page 50. Well, I wrote it in the book on page 54, but I think you asked us to write um, what we would do uh, what would we do in the case of crisis? Yeah. And to just think through, and I, I so appreciated the way that you you did that um, in in your memoir, thinking through crisis situations in in light of students' experiences in your in your classroom of how um, water crises. I don't speak well without a script. How drought led to armed conflict and. Mm-hmm how we prepare ourselves ahead of time for whatever may come by, um, thinking and planning and building community and practicing mutual aid and, and being in collectives so that we are ready to, um, remain in community and remain and and live as people of peace. Um, and I don't know if we can do it. But um, I think we we can only do it if we're we're already doing it and if we're practicing that. So I was very inspired by how your book is a workbook.
2: Yeah, I hope so. And I think that more of us can do it. The thing is, we're going to die, each of us. And once we recognize that, it's easier to decide how we're going to do that and how we're gonna live until we do that. Um, The notion that humans should or could or might live forever I think is pretty harmful um, and dishonest and also leads us to act not as well in a crisis. After the gunman incident in my classroom, what, what we discovered were that the students who had thought that something like this might happen, actually all responded in, they responded in different ways, but they all could respect themselves for how they responded. The ones who had never considered it, or who, who just simply froze, um, were the ones who had the hardest time afterwards. But I bet that the next thing that happened, they did better because we talked about it a lot after that, and they all thought about what they wished they had done or what they might do next time. And you know what, we have to respect ourselves even if we freeze next time. But when it comes to it, some of us are going to be without water and some of us are going to be without food. Some of us are. Let's go to the bigger us than just those who are in this meeting tonight uh some many of us are without food without water and um i hope when if that's me i will not turn to fighting it will be harder if it's if it's children i'm responsible for who are without food and water it will be hard and i don't know what each of us should do but I long for conversations where we think, what would we do? As well as how can we prevent that? But it, it, we, can't, we haven't prevented it. It's already happening, maybe not to you and to me, but it's happening to people I love, to people you love and to people we would love if we knew them and to all kinds of, of people, beings, non-human, it's happening. Um, how can we extend love and not look away even when, even when it's pretty desperate. Now someone else must say something.
1: I'll just, um, hop in for a moment to thank you, um, for this exchange between Renee and Sarah, such, um, love and respect. Uh, there and also flowing, to use the metaphor of the evening, out to the rest of us. Um, I do want to encourage people to, especially now, um, place any thoughts or questions in the chat. And unless I've been missing some, um, I'll just pose one to you myself, Renee, and and maybe if you're up for that. Sure. uh, And maybe uh, others, will come in um, while we're speaking. So I've been an educator for um, nearly as long as you have, you were as well, and we have others in this um, room. And I was so struck by uh, how much I recognized in your classroom, which of course I could only read about and not see but also um, that you had a very um, particular and special collection of people um, Mm -hmm. that uh, came into these classrooms that you convened. And I was struck again and again by their lived experiences as the sources of learning and teaching each other I mean, it seemed like really an extraordinary classroom experience again and again and again, and that your students really have been the front line of the climate catastrophe as experienced by people around the world who find themselves toppled into Minnesota and exclaiming that we have water, for instance, and who educate, re-educate each other, and maybe you the first time anyway, that it wasn't war that drove us here, it was drought. Mm -hmm. So for those in the larger room here tonight who haven't um, yet had the opportunity of reading your book, um, could you reflect more on your uh, work as an educator and how the convergence of your educating these particular frontline students and perhaps even your own health crisis, like somehow that that all came together in the same moment. If that's of interest, go ahead. But otherwise, reflecting on teaching is quite enough. Yes,
2: that's a, it's a great thing. And I know there are others in the audience who teach at Minneapolis College. And I don't want to say that's the only place that this happens because everywhere, even a classroom where everybody looks the same, as you listen to them, you find there is a wealth of, of divergent wisdom in that group. Um, But the Minneapolis College students did teach me an incredible amount because they know so much that I didn't don't know, you know. We can only know what we have experienced and wherever we walk, we're the center of the universe, you know, isn't it shocking. Um, I only see what's in front of my eyes and I only hear what's available to my ears and. If I read it, then I've read that, but that's all. I think that um, acknowledging our own individual perspective and limitations is is really helpful to then be open to the others. Students often came to Minneapolis College, in my experience, thinking that they had some deficit. Some would come saying, I don't speak right. And we, my colleagues and I would often ask, well, but I understand you. And you understand the next person, you speak great. You speak in ways that I don't know how to. I'm kind of limited in my dialect, in what I can do. And in that way, we begin to Broaden, And I am so um, blessed forever by the generosity of my students to let me in on some of the things that they knew that I don't know. Um, I think people who go into teaching with some kind of traditional education that tells them that they're bringing a bucket of wonderful stuff to people who need that wonderful stuff. I'm sorry for them. And I hope that they learn very quickly that they're bringing some stuff to a group of people who all have buckets of wonderful stuff. And the more you can look into one another's buckets and um, share that, the richer the whole environment, the classroom environment will be. Um, I think I'm just going off of your question, Beth, but <laughs> that's that's my thoughts. I mean, it's such an honored place to be in a classroom, and, um, and then there is the awkwardness of the disproportionate power that one has to overcome. The teacher's given all this space and this big desk in the front of the room and paid, and um, that really sets up a... Harmful power dynamic that it takes some work to to set aside. Those of us who are privileged in many ways need practice in setting that aside. I think. Yeah. You were yeah. mentioning. Go ahead. Yeah, I was reading some of the things Sarah had just written into the chat about the way, I mean, it's, it's so embarrassing sometimes being uh, one of the privileged um, and the way that um, people come to this country, often my students came not realizing that this is, that the power dynamics in this land had harmed their homeland. And that's why they were here. Um, and it's it's a gift to to open that together. Um, yeah, you were going to say something.
1: Not at all. I, I, and that I'm so glad that you kept on with that. That's lovely. Um, you just mentioned the a power differential and that made me remember uh Chelsea talking about the power that each of us can have in in what we do in this life which is not to say that and i'm sure you didn't mean this at all Chelsea that we go out in the streets and raise our voices and yell i mean there's lots of ways of having power and knowing that you know you deserve to live here as long as you choose to as your book suggests we might contemplate is an option. Um, And Sam certainly talked about power in very um, beautiful ways. I I think I'm quoting by um, his, his visionary description of a deeper intercultural ecological democracy. That is what your book reminded him of as a set of possibilities that we humans have woven Um, And then um, Sarah's reflection back to you of these, uh, the ways that the book is at once very um, easily paced. I mean, given the gravity and the power of what you bring together in the book, um, there's ways that I can breathe as I read through the book, even though as she reminded us in her own essay response, love letter to your book, um, there are so many places and details and catastrophes and personal um, things to overcome in the book. So I guess I'm meaning to stir together here some um, recent comments in this very evening to do with power and, um, and to ask you to reflect um, on what we might conventionally think of as its opposite, which is tenderness, um, because that's a real thread in the book as well. And tenderness can also be power, of course. But tenderness and a kind of enforced introversion and focus on one's own survival, which you've had a very intimate experience of, it sounds toward the end of the book like you've gotten more even keel with it, but at first, it really knocked you over, yeah, um, as you described. So that's just a a collection of uh, reflections on what people have said, and also on what you've been sharing. Perhaps to give you the last word. Yeah,
2: and y'all just heard my insulin pump beeping. I never managed to turn off the sound when I. It doesn't ever tell me when it's gonna beep. So that's how it goes. Um, one thing i've thought of as you're speaking is uh something that consoles me sometimes which is that life brought us here somehow life decided or did or uh, made us um whatever you think life is whatever however you know we didn't i i didn't decide humans didn't decide to be here life brought us and so we Can be a little humble about that too it's not just that we've ruined everything maybe it ruined everything by bringing us I don't know but. um, And I don't know if there's a purpose, but we can. Choose how how what our attitude toward that is and how we're going to use the teaspoon of power we each have. Um, We do. We we can do things. We get to talk to each other this way, which is pretty wonderfully incredible. We get to console one another um, after reading the news, or facing another hard thing, or losing a student, or you know the things that we go through. Um, we are together, and we can be tender and. And I think we can also remember that those things often don't show up in the news. Um, The news has to tell us the hard stuff if we're gonna read the real news. But we also also gather bridges of of love and community. I watched a video of people coming together in Haiti and making self-help, self-feeding, self-acupuncture clinics because nobody else was coming in to help them and so they did it nobody on the outside is helping us get over this crisis so perhaps we will we will do it and um also the humility of knowing that the good thing we've got the good things we've got we can use but we just have them For instance, my diabetes diagnosis came at the same time as my sister-in-law got her ALS and um, diabetes, at least with insulin, I can continue living with. And there is no reason, uh, no virtue on my part. Um, And she did her path with dignity. And I have huge respect for how she followed her path. Um, we, we have stones ahead of us and trees around us and skies above us and the next step to take.
1: Yeah. Well, and a little coda, which I think will, um will ask you to just follow some of these thoughts a little further comes from a question from Sam. Um, and we'll let this be how we close, at least the formal part of the presentation. Um, so his question for others who can't see it, the US embodies ecological imperialism as its way of sustaining itself. How? do we redefine what matters in relation to each other and all of life? Which is a great question for all of us, but given the wisdom that you've been um, offering tonight, Renee, I think it'd be great to hear what you think about that. That's a wonderful
2: question, Sam. And it is true that the US does embody that. And our modern materialistic capitalistic um, inherited or foisted upon us, um, mindset embodies that. The first thing that comes to me to say is to watch the word we. Um, I'd like we to mean bigger than what it usually means, bigger than humans. I don't want to use just we as Americans. I, I don't want to claim I will take responsibility, but I don't want to join in by saying we in some ways about things that are wrong and that I want to stand against. Um, we is awkward. It's a very awkward word. So I want to consider what I mean when I say that. Um, I can ask you, how, how can I work with each of you? How do I speak with you right now? This is the moment that we have, all of us, whatever we are, 18 now together um how do we do this and we're not just 18 of course we are all of our multiple myriad internal beings and all of our around us beings um i don't know that there's there's a way of a sentence that i can make but there is an attitude perhaps of openness and of looking for way. Sam, I'd like to hear what you think, what you would say.
3: Well, Renee, I think of, as I listen to you, that song, which people in your generation and mine know, one is the loneliest number. (laughs) Younger kids maybe have never heard it, but I think of I as one of the most violent constructs and it's a basis of western civilization is individualism and rationalism and these two things as they collide they erode the basis of our existence which is relationship so as i think about we and you know i love that you know beth has it right there as a poster on her wall in front of her books yeah. um when my students of the current generation of young people in their, eight, in their late teens and 20s really pushed us to think about pronouns, yes, yes. I initially rebelled against it because my pronoun was we. And they said, no, you have to say he or they or, you know, mm-hmm. some approximation. I said, well, okay, I'll start with he, but then I'll include they and I'll end with we.
2: Totally.
3: Because at the end of the day, I am because we are. And I think all of us have spoken to that in some way. I think that we live in an individualist society which feeds imperialism and colonialism, because it's all about materialism. You live by consuming. And I imagine that part of the work of the next decade is unraveling the ways we've been conditioned to divide ourselves from each other, which happens through a healing process. Mm And it came up in the comments of one of my colleagues here and in your own comments, grieving. Yeah. Um, I think Beth talked about tenderness.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: If we're afraid to cry, then we can't come into relation. If we're afraid to shake and we're afraid to fall apart, then we can't come together. Um, So Kirk Washington Jr., and and it's a a friend of mine who came to his funeral that I was the moderator for, um, made this painting for me after the the service um, because the living room that Kirk regularly held space in, um, he would often start with this saying or end with it, we know how to be divided. But what I really wanna know, what we really need to know is how can we come together? How do we go from living as though I matter, which is organized around race, class, gender, religion, geography, so on and so forth, to we matter. So coming to this bigger we, watershed of values, watershed of relationships, for me that's the key. If we can facilitate from this evening's discourse a commitment that we each hold together of doing this process of thinking about, hearting about, willing about. Yeah the evolving we, then the world we wish for will come more and more and more into view just through that daily practice. It's a discipline.
2: It is a discipline and a thing to practice. I think if we also recognize that we are we's each body, you know, my beta cells died. So I'm a little bit smaller we, except that now I'm a we with my pump that is replacing them. But I am a conglomeration. So I'm definitely a they. I get it and I will accept this like which pronoun, but I have always felt very they-ish. And I, I like your coming to we-ish. Um, yes. And more- Maybe, than maybe just, that's your
3: next book, Renee, coming to we-ish.
2: <laughs> coming to weish. that's a nice one, yes. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, let's all come to we-ish. <laughs> and uh, I really am so moved by um, the, the entirety of this conversation and, and especially in where uh, Renee and Sam, you're, you're bringing us um, at the end here. And I'm gonna invite um, my colleague, Carla, to wrap up the formal recording of
0: the presentation.